Hello, and welcome to the Tartan Tardigrade. This is a podcast brought to you by the UK Centre for Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. In the podcast, we talk to astrobiologists from around the world about their research, their careers, and anything else that comes to mind. In this episode, we are joined by Marc van Zuylen of the Institut de Physique du Globe de Paris, who told us about how to test the biogenicity of ancient microfossils. He talked to Annemiek Weyen and Sean McMahon in February of 2019. So I'm uh, Mark van Zouden. Uh, I'm a CNRS researcher uh, at the Institut Physique du Globe in uh, Paris. So uh, I work for the French uh, National uh, uh, research uh, council basically and um, I started with that in 2006 so if I go over my career um, I studied uh, geochemistry in Utrecht um, so that was in the in the 90s basically and right after that I moved to uh, NASA Ames for a short summer internship where I was working uh, with Linda Jenke on uh, hot spring uh, environments, actually Yellowstone National Park, and we were looking at uh, biomarkers uh, that are typical for cyanobacteria. And right after, I got uh, the opportunity to um, do a PhD at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography uh, with uh, Gustav Arrhenius. And so I started in 1997 with my PhD on studying the oldest traces of life on Earth, basically graphite uh, particles that occur in the Isra supercrustal belt in Greenland. So these are 3.8 billion-year-old uh, graphite particles. So my PhD uh, went until 2000, beginning of 2003. Um, then I started a Marie Curie uh, postdoctoral research project at the Centre de Recherche Petrographique et Géochimique in uh, Nancy in France, working with uh, Bernard Marty. And uh, there I uh, did several things. Uh, I worked on uh, uh, briefly on metal isotope uh, uh, studies, but I sp- especially worked on in situ analytical techniques, particularly ion probe analysis of organic material looking at carbon isotope ratios and nitrogen-carbon ratios, organic material. And after that, in 2005, I did a short second postdoctoral project at Institut Physique du Globe in Paris, so IPGP. And at that time, I was applying uh, for the CNRS. And in 2006, I was uh, recruited as a CNRS researcher. So then I started working um uh, together with uh, uh, in the group of uh, Pascal Filippo working on all kinds of tracers for early life uh, all kinds of isotopic ratios, sulfur isotopes iron isotopes um, and I continued working on the characterization of carbonaceous materials in the early rock record particularly using Raman spectroscopy and after that I uh, did a short intern um not an internship, um, uh, uh, a two-year project, so-called detachment in Norway, uh, University of Bergen, 
which was at the time a center of excellence in geobiology, where I was focusing on Raman spectroscopy. And after that, in 2010, I came back to the CNRS at IPGP in Paris, and I started developing several uh, in-situ analytical techniques for tracing life. In 2015, I um, obtained uh, an ERC consolidator grant, and I'm still carrying out that project. So since 2015, I've been focusing on the study of um, traces of life, like microbial structures, in uh, silica matrices. And um, that project is called uh, Tracers, or Traces, uh, and it actually focuses on um, how organisms are preserved in silica matrix, but also in how we can detect and distinguish them from abiologic structures throughout the early rock record on Earth. So I currently have a team of uh, uh, four postdocs, um, and I had a PhD student and several master students, uh, and this project is still running until 2020. Thank you, Mark, for the for your explanation of the of your career. Um, could you tell a little bit more about uh, the project you're currently doing and how that's related to astrobiology? Yeah, so the current project, uh, which focuses on a s- silica entombment, basically of microorganisms, um, what the key point of that project is is basically to see how. Uh, organic structures can be preserved over millions and ultimately billions of years in progressively altered rocks. The the big problem we have right now is that we find all these uh, organic microstructures in the in the early rock record, and as we go further back in time, we try to trace these in progressively more altered rocks. And the problem is when we go to these mostly altered rocks in the Archean we end up with microfossils that uh, might be a microfossil or might not be. And that has to do on one side with the degradation in metamorphic rocks of organic materials, and on the other hand, on all kinds of abiologic processes that might have occurred under the circumstances in the early Archean that created structures that look like microfossils. So... My project goes comes from both sides. It studies on one side the progressive de- degradation of cellular components and different types of cells of microbes. And on the ha- other hand, the study of abiologic structures, such as self-organized uh, mineral structures, such as biomorphs, for instance, that uh, could look like a microfossil. So those two aspects are very important in that project. Um and of course, uh, this is divided up in several components. So we're studying modern analogs where we look at how organisms are actively being fossilized. And we look at hot spring environments for that, where we see how microorganisms are being entombed in a silica matrix. Another component is to look in the lab on an experimental level what happens if we take solidified microorganisms and progressively alter them to, by putting them under high pressure and temperature. And then we go to the rock record and look at progressively altered rocks and see how we can actually trace specific components of microbial cells. So it's those three components that make up the current research project. 
the relation to astrobiology is that um, this research will advance um, our insight in the difference between life and non-life and how we can trace that into the earliest history of our planet. Uh, and this is a very important component of astrobiology to understand the earliest history of life on Earth. But of course, we want to extrapolate that to other planets. Uh, this is a very important component of astrobiology. We want to understand how we could potentially trace life on Mars, for instance. And for that, this research is also important because we care we carefully study what is actually entombed into a mineral matrix and what is actually preserved over time. Um, so this research ultimately will be applied to uh, the search for life on Mars. So when it comes to big fossils, dinosaurs, ammonites, whatever, it's easy to tell the difference between what's really a fossil and what's just a funny-shaped stone. But when it comes to really small fossils of bacteria or other microorganisms, not only do they not look very different from mineral particles to begin with, um, but it's difficult to preserve them. And what you're saying is there are these things called biomorphs, yes. which are really very good at mimicking the structure of bacteria, yep. but just grow from a completely non-biological chemical reaction. So this is exactly the, the, the point. Um, as you say, dinosaur bones or, or, or ammonites or so have such a distinct morphological complexity that it's very difficult to find an abiologic way to make that complex morphology but when you go to the microbial part of life on our planet which was the most dominant form of life for the largest part of earth history then we are stuck with very similar uh, very simple forms very simple morphology most microbial organisms have uh, filamentous or cocoidal shapes and unfortunately, there's a lot of abiologic processes that, that can mimic that morphology. Simply, uh, an aggregate of bubble, bubbles that are uh, stuck in, in, uh, in a mineral matrix could look like an assemblage of uh, microfossils, for instance. But what is really intriguing is that there are complex structures that can form by mineral self-assemblage. Uh, and these are so-called biomorphs. These are crystals that can form aggregates that look like life. Um, and this was shown first by uh, Professor Juan Manuel Garcia-Ruez, who um, is at the University uh, of Granada and uh, at the Institute of Crystallography, who has shown in the 90s already that certain minerals can self-organize. Uh, for instance, uh, certain carbonate crystals like for instance barium carbonate, but also strontium carbonate and certain calcium carbonate minerals. In alkaline conditions, these minerals can nucleate, but if there is a lot of silica in the system, there will be a competition between silica polymerization and uh, carbonate crystallization. These two precipitation reactions will counter uh will have opposite pH shifts in the system and therefore you create uh, a competition between carbonate nucleation and silica precipitation. And in that competition, very complex uh, self-organized structures can form of 
carbonate nuclei and silica polymerizing uh, shells surrounding these nuclei. So this has been shown. There's this famous paper in 2003 in Science from uh, Garcia Ruiz et al., where you where they showed that you can make um, self-organized filamentous structures that consists entirely of carbonate nuclei and silica shells that look like a filamentous uh, structure. Now, if such an assemblage has such a biomorph, adsorbs certain organic material, and then is exposed to temperature and pressures that would cause fossilization, then you would create the same shape as a microfossil. So this was shown uh, experimentally, basically, that this is possible. Since then, it has been shown in all kinds of additional experiments, also by shifting different uh, pH conditions, that an entire range of these biomorphs can form. We have also done this in our lab, in collaboration with Juan Manuel Garcia-Ruiz, and we've shown, uh, this is a study of uh, my PhD student, uh, Jyoti Rouillard, that we can form a whole range of morphologies that mimic ver uh, various types of uh, cellular morphology. So indeed, the problem is twofold. We have simple morphology for, for all these microbial cells, and then we have complex mineral uh, self-assemblage processes that mimic those simple morphologies. And in your lab, you're trying to figure out when um, what the difference is between the morphologies of biological and non-biological material. Yes, exactly. And what we also do, what we want to see, is what the differences are on a nano level and on a micron level. So, for instance, if we would uh, if we would study on a nano level the composition and the structure of a microfossil, which might contain uh, some some nanoscale fabric to it or so, would that be different? in an aggregate of a whole bunch of meteorite nuclei, for instance, um, and what we see compositional differences. So uh, this is what we're studying in the lab uh, at this moment. Yeah. If you would find such structures um, that look like microfossils, for example, on Mars, would you do you think that you would be able to um, investigate whether maybe now or maybe in the future, whether you can see if it's actually microbial fossils or if it's abiotically formed? Yeah, so this is an interesting question because um, there are many analytical techniques that we can nowadays use to do very high-resolution in-situ analysis of, for instance, a microfossil. We can use... Yeah. Raman spectroscopy, uh, secondary ion mass spectrometry, uh, transmission electron microscopy to characterize a microfossil on almost a nanoscale these days. The trouble is those instruments we cannot use on Mars. So um, we're, we're stuck with relatively simple types of analysis. Not that the instruments are simple, but the, the type of analysis is not of the degree that we can do in the lab. So... A very important component for research on Mars will ultimately be morphological interpretation, as we did old, in the old-fashioned way with microscopes here on Earth, or um, 
techniques such as Raman spectroscopy or uh, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, the types of techniques for which you can simply use a laser and get a non-destructive direct analysis. But that's limited information that you would create with those kind of techniques. So in the end, it will be a combination of those techniques and morphology. Um, I I suspect that in the future for, for studies on Mars, Morphology will end up being a very important uh, factor in biomarker research. Of course, we can search for all kinds of complex molecules and we can search for all kinds of um, chemical remnants that we'll find on the surface of Mars. But um, this will be a rather advanced type of analysis. And the other issue is, will those types of molecules be preserved over billions of years? That's the other question. Yeah, so one question I have is, does your work provide any guidance for where we should be sending rovers and what kinds of rocks they should be looking at, or conditions those rocks might have been exposed to? Yes. Um, The issue here is that um, if you study preservation of microorganisms, it turns out there are several factors that that are very important. One is to have a very rapid encapsulation into a mineral matrix. Uh, so it's actually the, the 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 speed with which microbial or organic materials are completely enclosed in a mineral matrix such as silica, but this can also be carbonate or phosphate or sulfate or potentially clay minerals. But the speed with which this happens is very important. The other very important factor is that you have a a matrix that upon recrystallization will not completely destroy the organic phase of your microfossil. So it turns out, this has been shown experimentally by many uh, researchers, but also based on uh, microfossil records, that silica is an extremely good matrix. So those two factors, the speed with which organisms are encapsulated into a matrix and the type of matrix suggests to me that, for instance, it would be very interesting to start looking into silica matrices on Mars. We know they exist. Um, There are silica deposits on Mars. Um, The other point is, of course, that uh, there should be a rapid uh, entombment or encapsulation, and that means it would be important to look in environments where you would have a rapid evaporation, for instance. Uh, So these could be lake deposits on Mars uh, and environments where a rapid uh, uh, precipitation occurs where microorganisms would be living that are directly encapsulated or potentially uh, hot spring environments, which there are suggestions for sites on Mars where that uh, might have occurred. So that we can project back to Earth and we can say, oh, we have these we have these Mars analog environments. And that's exactly what we see in the astrobiology community. We see a lot of researchers who go to these sort of Mars analog environments to study how these organisms are preserved. There's a large focus on hot spring environments. Uh, 
There's a large focus on uh, lacustrine environments and uh, any environment where rapid chemical deposition occurs. So you've recently been going out to visit a hot spring in the Atacama Desert. Yes. Which is in Chile, is it? Yes. And uh, is that a site that you think has some similarities to possible fossil preserving sites on Mars? Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, I think that, but, uh, many people think that, and it has been suggested in several pr- uh, publications mm-hmm. now. There was a paper in 2016 by, um, uh, Ruff and Farmer, who suggested that, uh, that there are deposits on Mars, um, I think it's called Home Plate, uh, in Gusev Crater, where an ancient hot spring environment might be preserved. And they claim in their paper that look, that it looks very much like the sort of setting that we see in the Atacama Desert at the Altatio geothermal field. Altatio is in many ways extreme. Uh, it is very high altitude. It's a hot spring environment at 4,300 meters high. It has an extremely high UV, uh, irradiation at that altitude. Um, it's extremely dry. It's an evaporative system and uh, it has very large temperature fluctuations between day and night, as, as high as 30 degrees. So that means that um, the setting that is studied there looks the most to what the kind of environment could have been on Mars. And the intriguing thing then is, or the intriguing question we can ask the kind of microfossils we find there, so the, the kind of organisms that are being uh, encapsulated in silica in that environment, could similar kind of traces of life have been preserved in the sort of silica deposits that we find, like this home plate in Gusev Crater, or many other locations that we might still find in the future on the surface of Mars. So that's indeed um, one of the things that uh, people look into now. Uh, and I'm one of those researchers who deliberately studies that environment for that reason. Now. Yeah. What advice do you have for students that uh, want to get a career into astrobiology? Um, there are several things I can say about that. First of all, um, in general, when you go into research, you should be curiosity-driven. Uh you should not try to get stuck in uh, some kind of classical scientific field, but follow curiosity. And when you follow curiosity, it's often at the boundary between two fields of research or multiple fields of research that the most interesting things happen. And astrobiology happens to be such uh, a topic that cannot be pushed into one classical field of science. So... If you're a student and you want to study astrobiology, the first suggestion I have is that you uh, try to be as uh, widely uh, educated as possible in different fields of research. So, for instance, I myself, I come from geochemistry. So I studied first geology and then that merged into geochemistry and then that merged into microbiology and then that merged into metamorphic petrology and then that merged into sedimentary processes and that merged into a whole ensemble of all these sort of fields 
this is the tricky thing with astrobiology. It cannot be fit into one classical field. So this can be difficult for students that if you say, okay, I want to study astrobiology, where do you go? Do you go to the Department of Earth Sciences? Do you go to the Department of Biology or the Department of Chemistry? Often it's the case that in a Department of Chemistry, there's not an astrobiology program as such. So for students, it often is the case that uh, they would need to almost jump around into different fields. Of course, you need to have a strong basis in one field, but it's very important to have the opportunity to to follow classes in other fields. I, I was very lucky that I did that during my PhD in uh, San Diego. I followed classes in oceanography, but also in geology, and I also followed classes in chemistry and material sciences even. Um, that still helps me to this day. Uh, so that's the biggest suggestion i have for students to not get stuck in one field of science but to look around and f be curiosity driven it's also quite striking um looking at your cv that you've moved around quite a lot you've been in france in the us in norway um that presumably comes with personal difficulties but is it something that you would think is essential or that you would recommend yes no that's true um it is very difficult to on the one hand move around so much and on the other hand uh, learn so much at all these different places There's just, you would say okay yeah let's try to be in one place um, I think I was lucky to move around at so many places uh, it's intriguing to see how diff at different places people have different angles into the same problem so I think I learned a lot by going to all these different places and actually study there and work there But indeed, uh, to a certain extent, this is the fate of most scientists, uh, not only for astrobiology. Uh, many scientists have to move around in the world to follow opportunities, to follow uh, certain uh, projects. Um, I would say now, uh, after move, have mo having moved around so much, uh, it's good to be in one place and to be able to do everything but indeed the field of astrobiology requires to have a lot of interaction as i said before already with people from different fields and that also means people from different universities i think it's interesting that there are now many centers of astrobiology uh, especially in the us but also that there's different uh, things popping up in europe everywhere but Yes, ultimately, uh, it is important to have been at different, many different places. Yeah. So one final question that we like to ask all our podcast interviewees. Yes or no, do you think there is or ever has been life on Mars? Ooh, that's a difficult question. Um, Yeah, this this is easy to say, well, there could have been. <laughs> no. Um, there might have been a brief moment in time when it could have evolved, but I don't think there is much to find on Mars, ultimately, simply because the time window was so short, relatively, and the environments would have had very little time to develop 
basically until the Noachian and after that uh, I don't think there was any chance for the development of life the big trouble is we don't know how long it takes to generate life whether that was a process that took millions of years or whether that's a process that could happen very fast so who knows but um, I'm often very skeptical I'm skeptical again I think we will not find many traces of life if there was life on Mars, but it could have been a very little bit. Thank you very much, Mark van Zuylen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Tartan Tardigrade like to find out more about the uk center for astrobiology or astrobiology in general you can visit our website at astrobiology.ac.uk you'll also find links there to the other episodes of the podcast and a link where you can subscribe via the university of edinburgh podcast service